Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Giovanni Perry. He is the Department Chair of Economics and Director of the Global Migration Center at UC Davis, as well as a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. His research analyzes human migration from a social, economic, legal, and demographic perspective, as well as highlighting the human side of migration. He sits on the editorial board of several academic journals in economics, has published for top media outlets, he has received grants from international organizations such as the World Bank and the National Science Foundation. In this episode, we talk about reasons people migrate, what factors lead to a successful migration, and the role of immigration in American culture. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Perry. Thank you for coming on today and talking with us. Hi, Brandon Keller. Uh, my pleasure. is I'm very glad to be here. We would love to hear a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in migration e economics? And overall, how did you end up where you are today? So when I finished my college studies in Milano, Italy, uh, I uh, did one year of uh, civil service. Uh, back then, this was the early to mid-90s, uh, you could do this instead of your military service, which was mandatory. And I worked for one year in a center uh, where uh, immigrants and refugees uh, would uh, live for a certain period, and we, with a charity, would help them find a job, find a house. This was a period in which... Uh, um, North African and Eastern European and later on refugees from Yugoslavia, the ex-Yugoslavia, started coming to Western Europe. And one thing that struck me when I was doing this was uh, what kind of people these immigrants were, uh, how interesting, how motivated, how resilient they were. And at the same time, how the Italian press and public discourse was about the fear towards this immigrant. Then fast forward a year and I come to the United States as a PhD student. I did my PhD in economics at UC Berkeley in the late 90s. And now I see a little bit the other side. So I am an immigrant now. And uh, uh, many of my classmates are also foreigners who also come to the United States. And I can see what incredible asset and strength they are for the US economy, smart, uh, also resilient, motivated. And so as I start working on my research uh, as a PhD in economics, uh, I was really interested interested in what drives economic growth in the long run, what drives the success of a country, of a city. And I started thinking about the skill that people have, the abilities that people have, which are a key ingredient of the success of an economy. And soon after that, I started thinking, yeah, these immigrants that move are like a resource that moves from one place to another and enriches a country and generates opportunity and possibility for the receiving country. And that's how I started being interested in economics. And then when I became a professor and I was offered a place at UC Davis, a position here, uh, I came here and I started really doing research on this uh, uh, topic. And in the 20 years that I have been here, my research on immigration has become deeper and broader. We have uh, analyzed many different aspects of immigration, but always motivated by the idea, how can we understand this phenomenon to really first uh, 
do better policies. Second, help people and help business, help uh, the society to make the most uh, uh, of uh, this uh, big and complex uh, phenomenon. And this was has driven me to be a professor and then a director of the Global Migration Center. Could you speak more about what is happening at the Global Migration Center? Maybe some examples of specific examples of what your research is right now? Yes, um, we are a center uh, which uh, involves a professor, graduate student, and undergraduate students from many different disciplines. Um, a large group uh, is doing social science, economics, uh, quantitative uh, social science, but we also have uh, people in the humanities and qualitative social science in the School of Law and in the School of Health. Uh, we do research on several different topics uh, which, are, uh, which speak to uh, what are the reason why people move internationally, who moves internationally, and what is the impact of people moving internationally, both on the society that they live and the society where they go to. So just to give you a couple of examples, we have a lot of uh, work analyzing what's the effect of immigrants in the whole US, in the labor markets, on the companies in the US, on mm. innovation in the US. But then we also have uh, analysis which is more specific to the impact in California, for instance, we have looked at the impact of immigrants uh, who come in California to California uh, for studying or for working as a scientist and engineer. Uh, we have looked at particularly group of immigrants like refugees, uh, what determined the, uh, their mobility and their economic success. And then the People among us who do more qualitative approach, they tell more in detail the stories of the immigrant. They follow the immigrant and they tell what is the experience of being immigrant, how uh, is this interesting, distinctive. And combining these two things, so the stories and the quantitative analysis, we hope to produce information which is useful, uh, as I said before, to policymakers to understand the problem, but to the public uh, to improve their understanding and we have a lot of classes and courses where we teach this type uh, of uh, um, of information and this type of research uh, both uh, uh, in more quantitative uh, type of uh, um, framework and in more qualitative type of framework students are also involved in the activity of the Global Migration Center, both graduate and undergraduate as a support to research uh, in our data analysis, in our in on the field uh, intervention, but also they are a very important part in running the center. In particular, we have a very active website, social media presence, uh, media connection, uh, event uh, sequence, and uh, both the graduate and the undergraduate students help uh, staffing and running these type of events. It sounds like your lab is pretty interdisciplinary and that you guys are putting a story behind what is often just numbers. This is exactly the goal. I think that to do good research, especially in the social sciences, you need to be motivated by some personal story, by people. And sometimes listening to the story of the migrant or going and seeing how the migrant work, both when he's first coming to this country, when he's working in a factory, when he's working uh, in a lab, this generates a connection of people. But then if you want to go beyond the anecdote into really telling stories which uh, uh, can help us 
to understand the impact in society, you need to work with the numbers, uh, know how many are coming, what type of immigrant, in what periods, what, where they work, what type of jobs they do, how do firms respond to their arrival. Mm. And this is all based on data analysis. The combination of these two things is what I think does excellent research for an economist or a social scientist that will both be relevant, but also be rigorous and be innovative. Amazing. In regards to the story, can you explain why people migrate? There is a set of reasons why people migrate, but there are three or four important factors that you see uh, time and again in motivating migration. I will say, I will say uh, uh, scientists that study migration uh, separate a little bit what we call push factor, so uh, situation in the country of origin that pushes out uh, uh, a person, and pull factor, uh, condition in the country that uh, um, receives this immigrant that attracts. So there is an economic force. So people migrate to find a job, to find a better job, to find better wage. That's uh, what motivates a lot of migration in the world. At different stage of your life, this may mean that people move for access to better study, which then in perspective will give them better access to job and better career. So a lot of people move when they are young uh, to study or when they are young and they're starting their career. This is the big driver, uh, economic study. Uh, the other big driver is to join a family member who has uh, moved. An interesting thing is that migration works in networks, as people say. So one people migrate first, and then friends, family uh, go with him. And this is very important to predict and understand what type of migration will happen uh, next, if you know what came before in terms of migration. And then there are factors that are driven by the condition in the country of origin. A a war, an extreme uh, a crisis in the country of origin, obviously is going to push uh, people out. But uh, if you look at the whole world, you shouldn't think that most or all migration is just uh, people pushed out of their countries because of crisis. A lot of it is people moving out of their country to look for opportunities uh, somewhere else. So the combination of these two things, I would say, explain a large part of world migrations. Mm. How would you say climate change is impacting migration? And where do you see it impacting? Do you see it impacting further or greater in the future? Climate change already has uh, and it will have even more an important role, especially in determining these factors that I was talking about in the country of origin. So think about uh, climate change as uh, two or three things. One, temperature increasing. Uh, second, in many parts of the world, in most cases which are already relatively poor, droughts and uh, uh, and period of uh, you know particularly hot weather and then what are called extreme weather events so hurricanes uh, flooding all three things have already increased in the last couple of decades and they are projected to increase more so number one the situation in many countries uh, will become because of this uh, uh, of this uh, uh, weather phenomenon even harder for some people to uh, live uh, and many of these people will try to move out of the areas and the region which are hit by these uh, weather events or drought or increasing uh, temperature. I want to say an interesting thing about the consequences of weather change on global migration that 
was one of our publication and our research. Clearly, migration is what people call uh, one margin of adjustment to climate change which means people can move out of an area that becomes uninhabitable. But there are others. People can try to improve uh, their situation. So this mechanism uh, seems to have pushed people out of some areas, but with two, uh, with two characterizations. One is that most of the climate migrants don't go very far from the place where they are displaced. So a lot of it is internal migration. So a lot of worst impact of this is in some Central African countries, Sub-Saharan African or Southeast Asian countries. And many of these people are displaced from the countryside that becomes less mm -hmm. productive into the city or into a nearby country which is a little bit more developed. Not too many so far of these um, um, weather migrants have done the very big migration, for instance, from Africa to the US uh, or from uh, uh, or from Middle East uh, uh, to the US. Uh, and the second is that uh, um, in order to respond to uh, climate change with migration, it seems like uh, you need to have at least a very little bit of income. If you are really so poor that you are at subsistence every day, these local crises just uh, dig you deeper into your poverty. But if you have a little bit of option to move out, that's when you use all your savings and you try to move out. And so, interestingly enough, not only there is going to be a mobility, but even the mobility is a little unequal, is a little bit contributing to this differentiation of the world. So people who can will leave these places and the people left are maybe even more the people who mm. uh, don't have any means uh, to uh, live and this will, in the world, may generate some additional inequality. Yeah. So have you guys looked at the economic impact on the agricultural industry because of that? Because you said majority of these climate migrants are moving from a rural to a more like cityscape. And uh, absolutely. So the impact of, uh, of weather and climate change on agricultural productivity is, is in fact, I would say probably one of the main channel why people move mm. on. So first you have this bad weather event that make agricultural productivity drop. You have a bad crop, you don't have enough. People cannot continue to support themselves in the rural uh, economy and so they move. So number one, yes, agricultural productivity is a channel uh, uh, that pushes people to migrate. Number two, obviously the consequence of this is that you will have fewer people uh, in uh, uh, the rural area to uh, be able to, um, to uh, be supported and be sustained by agriculture. Um, this is a double-edged sword in a sense because a lot of economic development also happens because people leave the rural economy and go in cities. In cities, wages are higher, productivity is higher. So sometimes the weather just accelerates a dynamic of growth, but sometimes some of this rural part becomes particularly impoverished uh, through this double hit uh, in, uh, uh, in, uh, to the agricultural productivity. So I would say that very important is to look at the whole picture, uh, weather change, agricultural productivity, rural urban mobility, and that's what we're doing in our research. Amazing. Talking about like rural movement away from agriculture and when there are less workers to deal with the fields, have you guys looked into the, the changes that new agricultural technology will bring in the sense that they'll allow for more productivity with less workers? Yes. So uh, 
one other margin of adjustment to weather uh, and climate change is technology, uh, clearly. And technology will allow people to continue to have a higher level of agricultural productivity, even in worse climate with less, uh, with less rain. So technology meaning both machinery that you use, but also genetic type of uh, crops that you can, can be drought resistant. So technology is certainly what economists call another margin of adjustment in poor countries, but uh, certainly both technology and climate change uh, will push in the direction that probably in the future will have fewer people in these areas and so will imply that these people will move somewhere and how they integrate somewhere and what do they do to the economy of where they go to is going to be a very important uh, question for immigration consequences. It definitely makes sense. Now, pivoting a bit back to America specifically, could you comment on our current macroeconomic standing or specifically our labor markets? Because it seems to be that migrants are often in the conversation of our labor markets. In the US, migrants are always kind of at the center of this labor jobs debate. You will hear very often in the press the idea that immigrants take jobs for Americans or immigrants depress wages of Americans. And as a consequence, they hurt the American worker. Most of the uh, research of economists actually show instead that immigrants uh, that in the US, uh, let's talk about US immigration, are mostly of two types. One are relatively low educated, uh, uh, low wage workers, immigrants who do jobs uh, in agriculture, in construction, mm -hmm. in uh, industry, and they do mostly manual, physically intensive job. And then we have uh, the high tech uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math uh, doctors. So so let's talk for a second about this less educated immigrant. Many of them in the last uh, 10 to 20 years have done jobs which Americans have fast moving out of. Uh, Americans are becoming older. The, the society is aging. They are becoming more educated. And mm. so not very many young Americans will want to be in the field picking strawberries or uh, working on uh, a construction project, while a lot of immigrants do that. So in the past, what economists found is that this inflow of uh, immigrants did not really displace Americans in their job, but help the companies, which do need worker, but then they also need this company engineer and supervisor. They help the company grow. And if the company grows, then the company also employed America, employs Americans because you need them another mm. type of job. If immigrants do different type of job than natives, then they do to the labor market what economists uh, uh, call they complement American. Mm. They don't replace. This has been uh, a lot of our work showing that this is what uh, is going on. And then the immigrants that come with a professional degree in science, technology, engineering, and math are really driving a lot of the innovation technological growth, which is also at the basis of our economic growth. Company grow because they invent new things, they produce new things. Both these type of immigrants grow the American economy and generate actual opportunity. And so on average, they help the American uh, worker. Now, you ask me, where are we right now? Well, right now we are in the aftermath of a big pandemic, which has generated an interesting phenomenon on the labor market, which is uh, we have lost a lot of workers because many retired. 
for fear of COVID. Many decided to change jobs because working in person was dangerous. They wanted uh, uh, um, uh, other type of work. But also, we have had a massive drop in immigration in 2020 and 2021 because the international travel was frozen. And so after the pandemic, we find ourselves in a period of shortages of workers. There are more openings in job, many more openings than workers. And people ask, could immigrants help filling this gap? And the answer is that yes, but not just in the long run, short run. Immigration is rebounding a little bit and some immigrants are coming back. But if you think the next 10 years, a lot of Americans will retire. Our uh, structure is that the baby boomer, which is this massive generation, are going to be out of work. And so a lot of job will disappear if we don't have uh, a replacement. And Immigrants in the medium and long run can replace native. We just recently put out an analysis and studies that look exactly at the effect post-pandemic of this drop in immigration and what are the potential perspectives showing that the, po the right policy would be right now to allow more immigrants to compensate the decline of native in the labor force. And has our policy changed to address that, that clear need? So immigration policy in the United States uh, have been uh, only source of uh, disappointments, if you uh, like, in the last 20 years, mostly because nothing has changed. Uh, immigration policy in the US, if you really want to change the rules, you need a Congress uh, law, and they're all going through Congress. And uh, the last time that Congress legislated on something related to immigration was uh, the approval of this H-1B visa in 1990. So it's about 33 years. After that, there have only been this kind of executive uh, type of decision. Uh, the president has some power in limiting some visa, restricting. And so the big picture is that, one, I don't think the immigration policies of the U.S., have kept pace with what immigration is in the US. They have not followed what uh, research scientists and economists have told are sound principle uh, to base immigration policies. And the presidential uh, decision, the presidential executive order have been more political and more ideological than data-based. And so oh, when a president comes in and he doesn't uh, like immigration in particular, will put in some measure to limit immigration, and it has been during the Trump administration. And so I will try to reduce that. But real immigration policy change, which will address a lot of this issue, has not happened in a long time. And uh, this is a big uh, issue in the U.S. Do you think our system will ever be able to adapt quick enough, especially as economic research is showing that hey, we need to change the policy in this direction. The quick answer uh, is no, but let me explain a little bit. So um, any type of decision that require a Congress uh, to approve a law is going to take a long time uh, because, uh, you know, Congress is low, there is uh, a slow in building consensus. There would be some way in which you could try to have a reform in which, um, which will uh, build into the system some mechanism to adjust. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, uh, one way that some country uh, have is a little bit more of an immigration system that responds to the labor market. If there are in a year in which you have a lot of labor shortages, very few unemployed, and in some sector you really need worker, you can issue more visa automatically without having had the Congress do uh, this type of decision. So many people have tried to propose a uh, reform uh, that happens once, but that 
that makes the system more flexible to mm. uh, respond to s- automatically uh, to some of these uh, um, uh, trends. Um, the real problem right now is that immigration is become an incredibly politicized type of issue and very few people will, uh, if you go to Washington, discuss about immigration the way we're doing here, trying to understand uh, the implication, the economics of it, the demographics of it. Uh, they will immediately start uh, with some uh, uh, partisan bickering. And so I'm not very op- optimistic that there will be some uh, of this, uh, but in maybe some simple, um, simpler decision could be taken. One would be Uh, Everybody seems to agree that uh, this uh, highly skilled science, technology, engineering and math, many of them are immigrants, they do contribute massively and maybe we could increase a little bit the number that is coming in, which is capped at 65,000 very drastically and is always oversubscribed. So there is hope for some little changes at the margin and maybe uh, we can uh, think of something in which uh, um, adjustments will happen a little faster. You mentioned how a lot of the changes we see recently in regards to immigration come from executives, come from the president. And a lot of people view the president as a reflection of the American people. Can you speak to the role of immigrants in their relationship to American culture and any changes you might have noticed during your research? So the immigrant view so the sorry the view of american people of immigrants has always had this a very dual type of story on one hand there has been if you go back uh, uh, to the the end of the 1800 the early 1900 when the first big wave of european came in to now there has always been this idea that the us is a country built on immigrants that the us is uh, the, the the american dream in fact that the, the word itself come from people who start poor and achieve su- success that the us is a land of immigrant almost unique in the world on the other end of the spectrum you have always said again uh, going back to the 1880 and in 19 the idea that a lot of the problem in the u.s are brought by immigrants and immigrants change our culture and in the 1819-1900 where the southern european in fact the italians uh, the boys who brought communism and anarchy and there was and then uh, now are the arab the hispanic that changed the culture these two things have always been there uh, in our analysis, in our, uh, we try to see if uh, when there are more immigrants in the community and in a place, uh, this uh, sentiment becomes stronger or become weaker because you can think that people exposed to immigrants on one end, they get to know them, so they don't fear them anymore. But if they see a lot of them and maybe the press uh, drums it up, uh, there is, uh, um, they could fear them more. And um, our results is that actually, on average, more immigrants decrease the anti-immigration sentiment. Mm. In fact, if you think of the US, where the places which are most pro-immigrant, think of San Francisco. Los Angeles, California, New York, that's where a ton of immigrants are. And the places which are more anti-immigrant, think of Alabama, think of Mississippi, those are very few immigrants are really Mm -hmm. in those uh, places. So uh, in a way, uh, this uh, seems to be important. But many things matter in terms of this. Uh, The education of people matter. College educated seem to be a little bit more open to this. Uh, The type of job that people do if they fear that they are uh, in uh, at risk of competition, they may not be, but they fear that uh, they tend to be more anti-immigration. So we also have a little bit of an analysis of what determines this. You asked me about president 
presidents and yeah, presidents uh, have changed. Uh, one thing that has happened in the last few years is that while historically the Republican Party has had a big part of pro-immigration people and George W. Bush was in fact a pro-immigration uh, uh, president for all the limitation. Now in this last version, in more populist uh, version, uh, kind of the majority of the Republican Party has become quite anti-immigration and this has blocked everything in Congress and elsewhere which can have to do with immigration. I have two quick thoughts on what you just said. Do you are you able to know that people become more accepting of immigrants because they are around them? Or since immigrants tend to go to more liberal places, is the liberal ideology what makes them more accepting? And then second, have you seen sentiment changing during economic upswings and downswings? Uh, those are very good questions. And uh, on both of them, yes, you can uh, uh, start to unpack. So um, the first question is what uh, social scientists and economists will call it a question of causality. Mm -hmm. What causes what? Is it that uh, more immigrant make people more accepting or that more immigrant go where people are already? So in our analysis, we try to separate. And of course, there is this idea that immigrant move in more accepting places. But we try to separate or isolate isolate variation of immigrant across the US just linked to historical tradition of immigrant coming in. I told you at the beginning that immigrant comes in network. So if you try to predict where immigrant will go based on the network, this is a pretty uh, kind of what we call exogenous variation in immigrant. Mm -hmm. It's not to do of what the ideology is now, it has to do with where immigrant went 50 years ago. If you try to only use that variation, you still find this uh, association that tells you that at least part of that connection, the more immigrant, less anti-immigrant sentiment is causal, goes in this way, although probably uh, not all of it. And second, uh, boom and recess. This is, uh, uh, the difference in attitude depends a lot on what economic situation you have. Not only boom versus expansion, so every, sorry, boom versus recessions, and uh, people in recession become more anti-immigrant. But also if you take a map of the United States, more fast-growing successful places versus stagnating high unemployment mm. places, there is more aversion where economic uh, conditions are uh, uh, poorer. So this is why, though, uh, we really think that the economics of immigration is important. If you break in the mind of people this idea that immigrants hurt the economy and instead start showing them with facts that immigrants stimulate growth, bring opportunity, a, a increase the local entrepreneurship demand, and so they could make a local community uh, more uh, richer and better positioned to also absorb recession, then you make some progress also maybe in changing their opinion. You spoke to how the opinions of the local people can impact the, the lives of the immigrants. Can you explain some of the other factors that play into a successful transition for immigrants? So in many studies that we do, we look at uh, uh, either what policies or what characteristics help immigrant to integrate from an economic point of view. So I would say number one is the access to labor market, to jobs, uh, especially in the US, immigrants come to work. So immigrants who can uh, have a job, can access a job, uh, tend to uh, faster grow in their income, but also uh, grow in other social indicator, uh, in the ability of having a house, owning a house, uh, ownership. So access to labor market, this is strongly co correlated with the uh, 
knowledge of the language learning the local language so uh, for adults for instance who come as adult going to adult school that teaches them uh, if they are not highly educated and for the second generation or immigrant they come as children going to school and staying in school uh, in up to high school and past high school those are all important element very correlated with uh, uh, their um, economic uh, uh, success um in some cases, we have studied also refugees in particular who come as particularly disadvantaged from a situation of uh, uh, crisis in their country. And for them, it seems particularly true that if they start when they arrive in the U.S. Uh, with uh, intensive language learning and in a location which has a lot of economic opportunity, a labor market that gives them, then their trajectory is going to be uh, better uh, than elsewhere. I have to say one thing in terms of economic integration of Immigrants. In this, the US does pretty well in some dimension relative to other countries. In particular, a lot of immigrants, even with low education, have jobs. They keep jobs and they increase their employment and wage in the first 10, 20 years. European countries, while they have more support and assistance for immigrants, they have an harder time integrating them in the labor market and uh, having them uh, converge. Uh, Germany, which is a country which has also a lot of immigrants, uh, France, uh, second generation are probably less integrated than second generation. Here so the US uh, um, is a very interesting place because in many things uh, uh, it seems that kind of we're doing things right uh, uh, although there are certainly some issues one of the the reasons why people come to America or migrate in general is access to labor could you speak on remittance and the role it plays remittances remittances uh, so Remittances, which are the money that an immigrant will send back to her or his family back home, for some countries, they are also a very important source of cash and, and almost more important than any foreign aid that the U.S. can give. So two countries where remittances are have been studied and they are very important are Mexico and the Philippines. Let me talk about the Philippines a second. Uh, many of us will, will know that there are a lot of Filipino immigrants in the U.S., uh, not just in the U.S., in Europe, in Singapore. A lot of Filipinos do a lot of work which are related to healthcare, assistance of the, the elderly, assistance of uh, the disabled. These are jobs which, uh, if you look at the future there will be more and more demand for these jobs and there will be fewer and fewer native people and the filipino have almost created internationally a network of people who are uh, competent in this and this has allowed the philippines to have a lot of remittances many of these remittances have improved the education of the children in the philippines they've gone back uh, to increase the opportunity of the philippines because if you think remittances the great thing of remittances is that not only are money from rich to less rich countries but also are money that are managed by a family not by a politician who gets some aid and who knows what he's going to do with it goes from the mom to the children the, and so it goes to be used where is most uh, useful so that's an important uh, factor of uh, uh, growth and uh, uh, we are uh, researching much more on this. Data on remittances are still very hard to find because this international transfer of money sometimes don't leave much of a track, a trace mm -hmm. that you can look, but they're very important. I just came back from Nepal and they said that remittances take up a majority of their GDP now. From an economist's point of view, how does that impact domestic productivity? So if... Uh, 
on one hand, remittances can be an amazing resource for a country because they give them a cash. And this cash can be invested in important things like education of the children, uh, small investment of the family. If one country has the indicator, as you are saying, that uh, remittances are a big part of the GDP, this tells as much about remittances as about the rest of the economy of the country. A country cannot be based only on remittances. And so uh, countries that are still very depending on remittances are because they're still quite poor and some part of the economies are not working. So uh, the bottom line for an economist is that a country cannot uh, they cannot uh, have a development trajectory only based on remittances. At some point, these remittances need to generate local investment that then produce local factories, local school, local, and so the, the GDP is going to grow. So they can be one of the inputs, but sometimes the GDP to remittances ratio is almost a measure of how developed the country is. Mm. A, very, a country that becomes very rich should not depend so much, but in a phase in which the country is growing, they can be an important input and component of the growth. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Now, kind of pivoting back to the integration of migrants, do you understand or do we understand the causality of why European migrants struggled to integrate more than American migrants? Is it market dynamics? Is it, what is it? Two or three potential uh, explanation. Number one, uh, access to labor market. Uh, so um, in Europe, most labor markets are more regulated than in the US, meaning on one end, the worker are a little bit more protected, uh, unions are a bit stronger, contracts are uh, more generous, but also at a, as a consequence almost of this, that they are a little closer to outsider coming in. So if you have a company and a manufacturing firm that has their own worker, they will a little bit try uh, to oppose the arrival of others. The American market are less uh, are less protected, less strong, more flexible. People, uh, employer hire and lay off people e more easily. And this generates flows in and out of jobs that help migrants who are new arrival and they want to uh, come in. So one is access to labor market. The second I would say is that potentially also, because the U.S. has already 150 years of history of immigrants coming and adjusting themselves. The culture of the U.S. is a mix of many cultures. Europea for European countries, mm -hmm. this is a much newer thing. Uh, France and Germany have had it since the 50s and 60s, in particular 1950s and 60s from their colony. But Italy and Spain, that now are two of the most uh, uh, countries with most immigrants, only started having immigration in the 90s. So there are much fewer of them and the culture of the local people is a little bit more of, uh, uh, you know, they are different and so harder to integrate. They are a little bit more segregated. So they live in area and part of town which are more uh, separated and they don't have the second, the third generation of the immigrant to see integration. They will still have to construct this form of mm. integration in the longer run. That makes sense. One key way for immigrants to integrate into a new country, I would assume, must be education because they get exposed to the local culture, to the local people. They're working with them. Could you speak on the impact of foreign students on California universities? Um, we have done quite a few studies on the impact uh, of uh, foreign students uh, uh, in uh, uh, the U.S. and then in particular in California. Uh, and let me summarize a couple of key messages from those. Uh, the first finding is that um, 
a large, a very large part of the student body, especially graduate, but also undergraduate in the US uh, is foreign born. And the higher you go in US quality, so a very high quality university as UC Davis will have a very big, almost half of their graduate student will be international and maybe uh, five to 10% of the undergraduate. Uh, the second thing is that international students, foreign students, tend to specialize in some uh, uh, in some areas rather than other. And typically, uh, in, again, in the U.S. and in California, they specialize in the STEM discipline and then in business economics. Those are the two things. And you can ask why. Well, I mean, a natural explanation is that uh, it's much easier for a person who comes from abroad uh, to transfer their math skills, statistics skill, than the knowledge of history, the knowledge of law, which is much more local. So you have much fewer law students and history mm -hmm. and language that are uh, um, immigrants. So they specialize in those. Um, but then the interesting thing is that what we've shown is that this comes for with a strong positive impact on the research productivity of the university. And then many of these students will go on the labor market, in the local labor market, at least for a while, about 20% of them, and contribute to grow local company. And many of them will create a lot of local enterprise. They will be entrepreneur, a large part. So cities like San Francisco, San Mateo, but also Sacramento, Davis, they have a significant number of startups which are started by foreign students. They have a significant number of lab and research center which are run also because of them. And of course, if you go around and you look at the faculty as a consequence, also uh, it's a, a big part. But think how much, uh, um, even just thinking at UC Davis, how much business, how much, uh, uh, how much uh, 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 demand economic growth the university brings to town and the university will hardly be possible without this uh, big inflow from foreign born and so this gives you an idea of how important are uh, students who come and then graduate student and then professional who come um, i want to say a last thing which is uh, that uh, the coming as a student not only is great for the receiving group, but also for the migrant herself. Because coming as a student, you learn the language, the habit, while you're still studying. You have an easy way in the American society. I, for me, coming to graduate student was the time when I learned a lot also about the American culture. And by the time I finished, I felt much more integrated and ready to uh, work, uh, interact, be part of the society. So that uh, schooling career gives you that uh, just accelerated integration in the society that makes perfect sense so we've spent the majority of the time now speaking about how many positives migrants bring to whatever country they're going to now i want to kind of pivot and ask like what do you have to say to those who are focused on the illegal aspects of migration the drugs the violence and if you look at the southern american border it is incredibly dangerous and there's a lot of negatives that are occurring with the illegal immigration there. So if you had to address those people who focus on those ideas and also if you had a magic wand and could propose policy to maybe limit some of the illegal activities, but also at the same time promote the legal activities, how would you go about that? So I would say that a lot of people have a serious issue with uh, the situation at the border because they fear or think that a lot of people come in undocumented and this is a threat and this is a danger. 
and this is true in some respect, meaning uh, uh, there have been a lot of undocumented immigrants coming in the US in the past. Right now, we are more in a situation in which we come, uh, the border has become very uh, protected, uh, in the, all militarized. Not very many people can come in uh, unnoticed. Uh, but now there is this new crisis in which some people want to come in to ask for asylum, mm. uh, but uh, probably they don't qualify as asylum, and so they are spending a lot of time there. One of the reasons that is creating the massive pressure at the border is that uh, there are essentially no legal ways to come mm. in the United States, especially for people without a college degree. We have talked about uh, students coming in legally, and then there is this uh, professional coming in. But if you uh, want to do a job in the United States that doesn't require a college, a job for which there is a company that is happy to hire you in the US and doesn't find an American, there is almost no way, there is no visa, unless you have a family member here and do family reunification, you cannot. So the first step I would say is to say, yes, we do need uh, to reduce undocumented immigration and uh, uh, this uh, of uh, not having uncontrolled border crossing is important but i would say that uh, um, you know we're not far from having a border which is uh, almost sealed we can improve some but then we need to find a way to admit some of the people who are stationing there and i would say a legal way of entry for people who can work so more work visa for people without a college degree mm. uh, if there is an american employer who wants to employ them um, again maybe mirror the type of visa system that we have for highly skilled which is the h1b for a worker who want to do a job in construction in assistance of the health of he healthcare, uh, where we need where we have huge shortages that can enter in legal way and stay for three four years working as long this will alleviate the pressure and will allow more legal entry and less illegal entry as a consequence so certainly a uh, uh, we will need to increase a little bit the number of legal immigration i would say to solve the problem but uh, uh, securing the border which is uh, very often said which is something i believe there shouldn't be any illegal immigration mm. people should come through the legal uh, channels uh, but sometimes the situation is so complicated because there are american employer who will want the worker but they cannot get it and so so more legal and less illegal should be and so a magic wand will be let's do a reform that addresses these two things secure the border and if you want but also relax the uh, constraint on um, legal immigration the other thing that we need to address is the 10.2 million of undocumented who are currently in the united mm. states they have been in the united states on average for more than 10 years more than 80 percent of them works and has worked for years there are about 8 million of them who are employees and they have worked for the out their, their throughout their life they have committed no crime but they're still living this shadow situation so at the same time as we address the issue of new entry and uh, border i think we should also address uh, a path for legalization for this group and this will have economic benefit we have done work on that this will allow them to get jobs with a little bit more wage that will give more spending at the local community will allow them to move more freely to go to other sector right now although they feel very important jobs everything is done in the shade uh, really mm. uh, and this needs to be addressed you, you spoke on the demand for cheap labor for these immigrants and that these businesses want to hire them. But I, I would think that not all of these businesses are at the borders. Do we have any systems now to get immigrants, uh, maybe illegal, maybe not, 
to the places that they need to be, that they have the highest demand for cheap labor? Well, so um, not quite. So the big period of undocumented immigration that then went all over the US and was higher by this was the 90s and the early 2000s. Then people were crossing the border and they were looking for a job and almost all of their employer were inland, were in Texas, in California, in New York, and they found a job and they stayed uh, there. So in an informal way, without having authorization, the economists worked to put them where they were in high uh, demand. Right now, it's much harder to cross the border and we don't have a system that uh, connects an employer in uh, um, uh, in uh, New Hampshire that wants to hire an immigrant. There are only some limited, a couple of limited programs. One is an agricultural visa program, H2A is called, only for doing a seasonal agricultural work. Mm. And every year, three, four hundred thousand people come back and forth, but you have to go back. And then there is a seasonal type of non-agricultural hospitality, but there are small numbers. And so, yes, that's exactly the issue. Uh, 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 employer would like to employ on this type of jobs uh, more people. There are shortages of these uh, people, but right now, mm, there is no way of connecting this employer in a legal way to an undocumented. And I would say right now, even undocumented, that there is not uh, uh, very many people who can come in and uh, freely go and, and, and look for a job. There are some of these people uh, who are uh, um, uh, uh, asylum applicants. They put an application for asylum and then for a while can stay in the US and they can work, but it's all very temporary. We don't have a system that connects. And that's what I argue. There should be such a program and there should be such a system. Yeah. You know, thank you for, for coming on today. It's been really interesting to learn about the strengths of immigration and the fallacies that we have within our system. We'd like to uh, slightly shift now and speak more on some of the technical aspects of your career. How does your process alter when you publish across different mediums? You've published for academic journals, you've published for ma major media companies, and you've published to advise for government. Could you speak to some of the nuances between these areas and how you navigate each of them differently? So my main job as the main job of every academic and graduate student is to produce high quality research output to be published in academic journals, in the top academic journal in your area. That's when you know that you're doing good research. Those papers require very careful data analysis for an economist, but also very careful organization of the results or presentation of the results. Sometimes they require some model more or less complicated, mathematical, statistical. And so speaking to this, that audience, you just need to make sure that uh, you cross all the T and dot all the I's to you do all the tests that you need to do from a statistical point of view. And that you have had an interesting, new, innovative idea on how to approach some of this issue because it's also innovation that goes into an article that publish as well. You are the first to think of a way of really saying how is the impact of immigrant on wages in this, some, some like this. Um, that's my main uh, uh, focus. But then, of course, these papers are too technical and too complex then to take the main results and talk about them either to policymaker or to the press. So when I write a policy brief, that I do a lot, I take the concept, the main results, and I try first to explain to policymakers that this is an important problem. The first thing that you want to do when you talk to a policymaker is to tell them, I know you deal with the climate change, with children, with poverty, uh, with immigrants. Look, immigration is important because of 
this reason, the labor market in the US are gonna be very affected. The demography is very, so first tell them that what you do is very interesting. Second, simplify your results. Explain them as I am trying to explain them to you uh, in a way that uh, um, any college uh, student or college graduate could uh, understand. Uh, and third, um, give them uh, a sense that something can be done. There is a policy and I have shown in my research that there are some policy which are good and other policy which are either useless or maybe bad and tell them you can do something in that. And then for the press, it's all about combining, as we were saying at the beginning, the story in which I can give you an example of an immigrant that did that and the research, the data and telling people, look, uh, you know, if you are thinking about immigration, yes, yeah, start from this story, but think that this story is just one little tip of the iceberg of this big uh, phenomenon that is happening everywhere and try to capture the attention and again, explain in simple words uh, what we are doing to the people. And with government policy, can you go into a little bit more detail on the relationship with the policymaker? Do they come to you and say, we would like your research on a given topic, or do you provide the research and then seek them out? So most often, uh, the interaction I have ahead, and uh, it comes from the fact that I write some research analysis on something and I post it on the web, people talk about that. And then somebody from either inside the administration or from center looks at it and says, ah, here there is an interesting result that has an implication for this policy that we're thinking or we may be doing. So sometimes you go there to do a testimony to the mm -hmm. uh, Senate or to, in which you, they, they are thinking, for instance, at, this was something that happened in uh, 2019. They are thinking of a law to legalize part of the undocumented. And they are looking at all the consequences and they are going to think, uh, how is this going to impact the economy? And, uh, and then I have a paper that uh, estimates and looks at how this uh, will, go, will go. And so some people from the administration uh, uh, contact me from normally the Council of Economic Advisor, which is this uh, entity uh, in the White, that works with the White House, and ask me, okay, what are your results here? What, do you, what are you finding? And this informs them and says, ah, there will be this positive effect. So if we want to pass this uh, law, we're going to attach your analysis that says to people, okay, you can think this way or the other, but this uh, is going to have this positive impact on the economy. So we bring things that hopefully sometimes is picked by politician uh, or policymaker in uh, uh, informing what the consequences would be. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Now, how has failure played a role in your career? <laughs> so in a career, I would say of every researcher, there are as many failures as successes because uh, for a se series of reasons. So number one, um, you have to not be discouraged by the fact that either a project doesn't work out as you want or an idea that you think is brilliant and you try to publish is found by other people not so brilliant and they just reject you. I have had... Uh, so many rejection of my paper because I try always to publish in good journal. Eventually, I normally publish in pretty good, very good journal, but sometimes not in the one that I hoped for because I thought this was a really breakthrough and other people think is good, but not uh, that good. So failure uh, is a, something that you should always confront. And uh, sometimes you start some projects which in the end, you think they're interesting in the beginning and then they uh, lose steam and they don't find uh, and 
that has happened many times uh, in my career. And I think, in fact, uh, uh, sometimes failure teaches you more than success because it teaches what you have to change and improve. And is uh, the difference between really good researcher and not good researcher is not, I mean, of course, uh, is also you need to be creative, brilliant, but 80% of it is who can persist and continue to produce good research in, face, in the face of many failure and who at some point says, ah, that's too hard and gives up. That really makes a big difference. Can you talk a little bit more about having an idea and having to give it up and what that feels like as an academic? Um, yes. So... There are two versions of that. One is having an idea that you really think is a, a huge idea, a big idea in the field. And then uh, you try it, you try to publish. Uh, so it happened to me that I had this uh, early way of thinking about immigration, labor market and wages that I thought it was really very interesting, brilliant. And I did this model and I thought that uh, it really should have a little bit changed back then. I thought to revolutionize the the way in which people thought about that. And I found many colleagues who kind of pushed back and they thought it was interesting, but it was not necessarily the way to go. And that was a huge disappointment. So this paper, eventually I published it and I accepted that it was a good idea, but not so good. Then in the longer run, I was a little vindicated because this paper then got a ton of citation and became actually a little bit of a reference in, in a way of doing. And so sometimes even if you don't hit the super journal, but a good journal, uh, you can be successful and you need to readjust and you need to be humble and say better publish here than not. Some people say, ah, okay, you say, uh, this is not the idea of the century I won't publish. That's a big mistake. You shouldn't do uh, that. And few times I started some project and then soon I realized that they were not going anywhere. But in this case, it was more because, uh, you know, access to this data was too complicated and hard or, or the person I was working with who I thought was really devoted to this then decided to do something else. And so there are all these uh, m uh, smaller failure. And then uh, sometimes in this case, it's better to cut the loss soon and say okay i cannot do this let's move on to something else yeah it's very insightful yeah now as we kind of sign off here do you have any advice for students especially those who may be interested in migration economics so to all students and uh, uh in particular to uc Davis students that i love the most um a couple of general things so if you're interested in research but in general if you want to be i think successful in what you do uh, you need uh, to have a uh, you need to be curious and interested and follow what you really like you need to work and I mean, these people say it a lot, follow your passions, but it's really true. If you don't do something that you see yourself doing every day for so many days and year of your life, you're not going to be successful. Follow what you like. The other thing, which is just as important, is be ready to learn and be very humble. Even right now, I know much less that I don't know, even on immigration issue. You always have to uh, understand that first, there are people who know more than you. And second, that when you deal with problem, there is a lot you don't know and you have to be humble. You have to be ready to revise what you think and change what you think. Curious, humble, hardworking, and follow your passion. For research, those are huge uh, things. Uh, at the same time, I think they are huge everywhere.
On the other hand, you need also have a little bit of a balance. You're not only brain, you're also feeling your heart. So a, a student should also do other things that they like. If you like sport, if you like other things. For me, hiking in the mountain has been always very important. Cooking is very important. Uh, spending time with my family and kids uh, has been very important. And it's very useful also to have a group, group of close friends that you can talk about these things and uh, uh, it's uh, lovely when you find other people that uh, don't judge you and you can uh, bounce on them some of this and uh, also they are supporting you when you have a hard time that's also a very important and a good career in research sure uh, must have the balance of these uh, uh, two things so i uh, give you this little um, uh, this uh, little suggestion for uh, future success well professor perry this has been wonderful. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. It was great to be with you guys. It was a pleasure having you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time. <laughs>